This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. The accusation you're deluded is often used as something of a cheap shot intended to silence an opponent in debate. It's rather like the phrase, are you out of your mind? And both insults, in fact, raise interesting questions. What's the nature of a delusion? And how can we assess rationality and irrationality? Well, those issues have been thought about by Professor Lisa Bortolossi, who studies the philosophy of psychology and psychiatry at Birmingham University in the UK, and who is the author of, among many other things, Delusions and Other Irrational Beliefs, and most recently edited Delusions in Context. And she's currently working on a project on agency, justice, and social identity in youth mental health here in the UK. So, Professor, uh, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. And let's just begin with the, the basic definition. What is a delusion? Tell us. Yes, so um, people may disagree on the precise definition, and the disagreement may depend on whether the person's background is in philosophy, psychology, or psychiatry. But I think the most uh, common and uh, accepted definitions of delusions basically tell us that a delusion is an irrational belief. So it is a belief that is held with great conviction in spite of not there being much evidence in support of the belief. The key feature of delusions as beliefs is the fact that they are very resistant to counter-evidence. So when the person becomes convinced in the content of the delusion, it's very difficult to actually persuade the person that things may be otherwise. And even if the person is challenged with new evidence or with arguments, they tend to stick to um, their delusional belief and uh, rather than giving it up, maybe providing some additional reasons why uh, things are the way they are there seems to be a conflict between the evidence and the belief, but actually everything can be explained. Right. And, and there are some very striking examples, uh, such as people, there are some people who believe they are dead. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so the delusion um, that you are referring to is the Cotard delusion, um, because Cotard was the first person who studied um, systematically this kind of belief. It's a it's a very rare delusion. It's not one of the most common, um, but it happens uh, to people who suffer from different uh, mental health conditions. And the person may state something like, I'm dead or I'm disembodied. And then they go on to provide some reasons why they think that's the case. Um, these have to do mainly with the fact that their experience of the external world changes. So they don't feel as affected by things. They don't feel strong emotions. Someone was describing it as an extreme uh, version of jet lag, where everything feels a little bit far away, a bit detached. Um, and what is interesting from my point of view 
is that even people who have this quite unusual belief tend to act on the belief. So they stop eating or they stop washing. In some cases, people just find themselves more comfortable in places like a cemetery than anywhere else. Um, so there is a sense in which the delusion becomes quite important to the person who, um, who believes it. Right, so they won't eat because they think there's no point because they're dead. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and even with uh, you know, psychiatric care, it's not possible to dissuade people of this belief. Yes, it's very difficult to dissuade people who have a clinical delusion um, because they tend not to see um, other people's arguments against the delusion as something that um, should have any kind of force. So let me uh, explain this a little bit better. They may recognize perfectly well that the content of their belief is unusual, and they also anticipate that other people will not believe it. So they are aware that the belief is implausible, but um, they think they have special reasons to uh, endorse that belief, maybe a special access to the truth or a better knowledge of their own situation than anybody else. And that gives them um, this kind of advantage, which makes every other attempt to dissuade them uh, ultimately unsuccessful. You talk about fixed irrational beliefs but let me give an obvious example of religion which many adherents would say is not a delusion but it is a fixed belief and irrational in the sense that some people say it's an act of faith you know there's no evidence uh, so is that a delusion yeah that's an excellent question thank you very much for asking i think it depends on uh, the context in which you are happy to call irrational beliefs delusions so most of the time, when we talk about a delusion, we mean an irrational belief um, that is also a symptom of a mental disorder. And I think that's quite crucial to our understanding of delusion. That's why at the beginning you were saying we tend to use the phrase you are deluded as almost an insult, right? You're out of your mind. So if we're thinking about delusions as irrational beliefs that are symptoms of mental disorders, then religious beliefs as such do not fit the bill exactly. They may be considered irrational by someone who doesn't share the religious belief, but um, they lack some of the features that clinical delusions have. For instance, clinical delusions like Cotard, the belief that I'm dead, is special because it's very idiosyncratic to the person who utters that sentence, I am dead, who has that belief. What do I mean by that? Is that people in the same community do not share that belief, do not uh, share the way that the person sees the world or see herself. Um, so the delusion in the clinical context is very isolating is something that um, causes discrimination and stigma. Uh, religious beliefs are not typically like that. They are shared, at least in some communities, and they bring people together. So a religious belief may be something that makes, makes you feel like you belong to a group or shares the same ideas, the same commitments. Um, so in that sense, religious beliefs and clinical delusions are quite different even if from the perspective of someone who looks from outside, a religious belief may have some of the same features as clinical delusions in terms of being fixed 
and according to that person, irrational. Okay, you're saying that it is a symptom of mental illness. So we've now got fixed, irrational, and with some sort of mental illness element to it. But uh, you also seem to be suggesting there that if it's widely held, if it's not an isolated condition, then that's a factor. But that's quite problematic, isn't it? I mean, if you if you have something like mass hysteria, that's a lot of people who would be experiencing and sharing that 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 idea at the same time and yet that 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 would be a delusion wouldn't it yes i think you are absolutely right that the way in which we talk about delusions and irrational beliefs is not completely coherent uh, so we tend to use the word delusion as a, a negative value judgment right you, what you say cannot be true what you say is a sign that you are not even well mentally um, but actually, when we're thinking about the specific features of the beliefs that we call delusion, uh, as I was suggesting, they're not that different from other beliefs that we do not tend to see as symptoms of mental disorder, such as prejudiced beliefs. For instance, if you think about prejudiced beliefs, they seem to be very resistant to counter-evidence. Certainly, we're not happy to give them up. Um, just because someone seems to provide some evidence that the group that we have a prejudice against actually does not share the particular characteristic that we dislike. And uh, also seem to be uh, manifested in behavior just like some delusions are. And yet they are not considered to be symptoms of mental disorders. And the main reason is that they are shared, unfortunately, sadly, they are shared among certain groups. So I think um, you're pointing to something really important. Sometimes we focus on irrationality as absence of supporting evidence or resistance to counter evidence. But maybe the distinguishing feature between delusions and other irrational belief is not irrationality as such, but it is how widespread the belief is and how accepted it is, whether it is accepted by just one person or whether it is shared in some community. And I think that is a really important point that people who studied both delusions and religious belief from a psychological point of view have observed that somehow our way of using the word delusion depends on how many people <laughs> hold that particular belief. Um, my preference would be to use delusion uh, to describe the epistemic feature of the belief. By epistemic, I mean what has to do with evidence, what has to do with confidence, what has to do with knowledge and inference. So if we're just looking at how the belief behaves, so the fact that it's resistant to counter-evidence, the fact that it's almost fixed, the fact that there isn't intersubjective evidence that supports it, I think that some religious beliefs, some prejudice beliefs, and some symptoms of mental disorder are all delusion in the same way, although they may be irrational to a different extent, but qualitatively are the same type of thing. Um, when we're actually thinking about whether having a particular belief should be a reason to worry about someone's mental health, then I think other factors should um, come in and become really, really important, not just factors that have to do with the absence of evidence, but for instance, whether the belief makes the person feel anxious, preoccupied, whether it affects their sleep, their capacity to hold a job their capacity to maintain social relationship. So it's the dimension of well-being, I think, that becomes really important when we're thinking about whether a belief is pathological. A religious belief might make us happier, even if it's 
false, even if it's irrational. It might give us a community, it might give us hope. Sometimes the delusion can be rewarding in the same way, but most of the time delusions are quite upsetting. They disrupt people's lives. And I think that's where the pathological sense comes in. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So, so let me just understand what you're saying then. If, if, you, you know, if you take the phenomenon of ignorance is bliss and the happy fool or something like that, you, know, you might say the happy fool is deluded, but happy. And you're distinguishing that from someone who's deluded and anxious, let's say. But are you saying both are deluded or just that the delusion should be associated with the anxiety, not with happiness? Ultimately, I think people make different terminological decisions about this. But my preference would be to um, call something a delusion when there are those features of irrationality that we started with. Uh, and so I have a kind of broad notion of delusion that applies to something that is pathological or is considered to be pathological, but also something that isn't. And instead, um, look at how people react to that belief, because ultimately it's not the belief itself that determines whether it is considered to be a sign of mental disorder or not. It's how other people react to it. Um, so if something that you may call a delusion, people take it as a prophecy, right? Um, and are inspired by it and follow what the person is saying. It's not going to be considered a sign of mental disorder. It's going to be even um, considered a special access to a new type of truth, right? Of, of a higher reality. So it's going to be given more value. If something instead is received as incredible, not worth listening to, um, something that nobody in the right mind would believe, and the person is isolated and discriminated because of that, um, then, you know, that it is no longer a sign of mental illness. It, I mean, it is a sign of mental illness, but it is no longer something that um, the person can be praised for or followed for. So ultimately, I think it's what the, how the audience reacts to the belief that determines sometimes whether we take the belief to be a, a symptom of mental disorder or not, um, which is something that is quite difficult to accept because we would like, the picture that we would like to have is a picture where irrationality and mental illness go together, right? That would be very comforting to think that um, having knowledge and having good mental health go together. And when uh, knowledge fails, then also uh, mental health is compromised. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that in human beings. Sometimes there is something that is very false and irrational that gives us extreme happiness, as you were suggesting before, the happy fool, or the person who is completely self-deceived about their lives, but uh, believe in themselves so much that they actually have a rewarding um, experience whenever they um, interact with their environment. And there are also cases where people have perfectly rational beliefs that make them unhappy um, because make them realize, for instance, their own limitations uh, or make uh, them lose hope uh, in certain contexts. Um, and I think it's, it's somehow uncomfortable to accept that, that rationality and mental health can actually dissociate, dissociate sorry. can actually um, not be together in this way. Yeah. Was it, but, okay, so this is, this is well, everything you're saying makes it sound as if you think delusions are quite sort of fuzzy, quite difficult to define, depends on uh, how people react to what you're believing, 
depends on the rationality to some degree, depends on mental health factors. It, it, it's, you're suggesting that delusions are, you know, the, the distinction between a delusion and a rational belief is dependent at least in part on what other people think. So it's, it's all quite relative, isn't it? Yeah, I think I can give you a good example of this. I'm sure uh, you have uh, read recently about the conspiracy theories that have emerged um, uh, about COVID-19, right? Um, the, the classic one is uh, denialism, so denying that COVID-19 exists, for instance, or, or conspiracy theories about vaccination. If you are someone who believes what the scientists are telling us about COVID-19 and about the effectiveness and safety of vaccines, you will be tempted to describe those conspiracy theories as deluded. And this has happened, right? So they've been described as delusions in opinion pieces in, in the major uh, newspapers and, and, and news um, that's what people do. They say, you know, this is not a sensible position to take. It disregards evidence. It disregards evidence, um, and it, it's not sensitive to arguments against it. So these people cannot be talked to. Um, this is actually a delusion, right? But if you belong to a group who has actually been skeptical about uh, vaccination for a very long time, maybe they have their own reasons. Maybe they have mistrust. Uh, towards pharmaceutical companies and so on. Um, the idea that the COVID-19 vaccine could be um, a way to control people or could be just proposed uh, for um, pharmaceutical companies to increase their income is not a delusion. It may be something quite sensible. It may be a, a, a hypothesis that deserves to be considered, right? So it seems to me that what we call delusion Yes, it is a belief that we think is irrational, but also it's a belief that goes against some of the other things that we already believe. Um, and so depending on our existing system of values and beliefs, um, we may be tempted to call something a delusion or not. Um, and, and that's just because, as you were saying from the beginning, delusion is a term that we use almost to evaluate what other people are doing. It's not just a description of what they're doing. It's an evaluation. You're saying that people is wrong when you're calling them deluded. And so your point of view, where you start from, when you're actually uttering that kind of judgment, really matters to whether something is a delusion for you or not. Right, because that, that, that's a bit surprising. I mean, you may think that, you know, you're having studied this for so many years, you know, talking to psychiatrists, talking to medical experts, thinking about the uh, nature of evidence and so on, that you would be able to reach an objective, clear definition of a delusion, whereas you're saying, actually, um, again, it depends on what other people think about what you're saying. I don't want to be completely like uh, relativistic about this. I'm just saying that delusion is a term a bit like rationality, right? So we use it to praise uh, and we use irrationality to blame, right? So because it, it, it contains some values, it's not independent of the other things that we believe and we care about. That said, when you talk to uh, clinicians who see uh, people with clinical delusions every day, they do say that there are ways to understand whether a person is unwell. So whether their delusion is actually a symptom of a bigger problem. Um, there are ways that, as I was suggesting earlier, do not really have to do much with the rationality of the belief or not just with the rationality of the belief. 
It's something about how the people seems to be completely preoccupied with the content of the delusion. So the delusion becomes something that is almost overwhelming and overrides everything else. It almost becomes like an explanation for everything that causes uncertainty in the person's life. It has a special role. It absorbs all the cognitive resources and the attention of that person. Um, So there are other ways in which you can tell whether a particular belief is good or bad for a person at a certain time, independent of whether you think it is supported by evidence or not. And certainly people who do clinical work and they have a lot of experience say that they can kind of recognize that in an encounter with with a patient uh, pretty well. Um, But I think that goes quite well with what we were saying before. After all, beliefs are just, you know, a part of our mental life. And they are combined with other things to drive actions, with our our desires, with our emotions, and so on. So for a belief to be a symptom of distress, I think it's quite difficult to think of the belief in isolation from everything else. And to give you another example, the same belief uh, may actually be for one person very full of meaning and very conducive to happiness, and for another person a cause of great distress. So take a persecutory delusion that people are following you around and always watch what you are doing. For some people, that's extremely distressing, right? Um, You constantly second-guess yourself. You almost don't go out of your house anymore because you are afraid of attracting this attention. For other people, that's a very kind of... um, empowering kind of belief. You think you are so important that everybody is paying attention to you. And um, and if you take it in that way, you know, it may not be actually a belief that is uh, disruptive for your life. At least it doesn't affect your everyday functioning as much as you'd suspect. Uh, And yet it's the same content of the belief. But combined with other experiences, other emotions, other values with someone's life can have completely different effects. And are you saying then that the person who is content with their irrational belief is not deluded? (laughs) Yes, that's the question, isn't it? So um, one person I'm working with, who is a consultant psychiatrist as well as, as a philosopher, just wrote up a case study that exactly describes this situation. A man who is content with, with their delusion. And she describes how the clinical team was absolutely divided about what to do with this person. They were going from the idea of sectioning him because he was a danger to others uh, to the idea of not doing anything about him because you know he could live his life quite happily. And I think those are the situations that really put us in a difficult a decision-making prospect, because whatever we do, we might get it wrong. We don't know the future. We don't know what will happen to that person next. But again, to reiterate you know, my suggestion, if we use delusion as something to indicate um, the epistemic feature of the belief, whether it is rational, whether it responds to evidence, obviously that person is deluded because their belief is not likely to be true, is not supported by evidence. If we're thinking of a delusion in a more clinical sense, that is a symptom of distress, then you'd seem that for this particular person, the belief is not a symptom of distress, at least at that time. So it shouldn't be considered something dangerous to uh, himself or to others. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And just to explain for people listening outside of the UK, when someone is sectioned in the UK, that word refers to a process whereby medics can basically get someone isolated from the rest of society if it is judged that that person is so mentally ill they're, they're a danger to others. So, so when you talk about mental illness, one of the th- things that just occurs to me is it, it's sort of fascinating that there are all these different conditions, right, that could lead to delusions. Yes. Have you, have you sort of managed to categorize or, or get a range of conditions that lead to delusions? Yeah, so traditionally, my understanding is that in psychiatry, delusions were associated with psychosis, so primarily identified in people with schizophrenia. Uh, and in schizophrenia, you'd have positive symptoms, such as hallucinations or delusions, and negative symptoms that more to do with the flattening of emotions and affect. Nowadays, I think people have recognized that there are symptoms that we can call delusions that certainly have very many features shared with delusions that are present in a number of other conditions. So I was mentioning before dementia. So people with dementia tend to have delusions about the past because they don't have access to their autobiographical memories They tend to reconstruct their past in ways that are not accurate and other people do not recognize what they say as truth or supported by evidence. Um, There are also delusional disorders. And the difference with schizophrenia is that um, in delusional disorder, you may have just one unusual belief, like I'm dead or my wife has been replaced by an imposter. Um, Whereas in schizophrenia, you tend to have a number of interrelated delusions that form a narrative. So you have a more kind of elaborated picture of reality that is uh, shaped by the delusion. You can also find in other conditions that traditionally didn't have anything to do with psychosis, like depression and obsessive and compulsive disorder. You can find beliefs that are similar to delusion. Let me give you an example with depression. A person who has very severe depression may have a very strongly held belief that they are a bad person, right? And that affects their mood, they affect the way they see themselves. That is almost as strong and as unsupported by evidence than the delusion that I'm dead. Um, and uh, it's very difficult for the person to overcome that particular belief. So people have started talking about delusions in that context too. Yeah, I, I, you just made me think, because I've just been making a, a historical documentary series interviewing eyewitnesses about something that happened in 1981 and I'm absolutely flabbergasted by how even massive events like a man being killed in front of these people within and they're all standing within a few feet they all remember it completely differently I mean even the most basic elements of it like which way the body was dragged away you know towards the front door or the back door things like this and Everyone's completely convinced they remember it right, but they all remember it differently. And just making me wonder, are they deluded? Yeah, that's uh, another really good case that I forgot to mention earlier, the case of memory. So we know now, because psychologists have studied this uh, in, in quite some depth, 
that especially when there are situations that are very emotionally charged, like seeing someone being killed in front of your eyes, people tend to remember that event in very different ways because their memories of the event is distorted somehow. And this happens also in more mundane cases. For instance, if you ask someone, what were you doing uh, during 9-11? They tend to uh, report things that, you know, if you look into the facts and and you try to fact check them, um, you find that they are not uh, actually reliable. It's because I think the, the strong emotions that people feel, the strong attachment that they feel to that particular event, change it changes the way they encode the information about that event. And when they retrieve it, they kind of reconstruct rather than based it on information that they have encoded in a reliable way. So I think we all know by now that memory is tricky in that way. That is mostly a a question of reconstructing things on the basis of some clues rather than just uh, retrieving a file from a cabinet uh, which was the traditional kind of metaphor we were using for memory, like a filing cabinet, but it's not so simple. We don't have all the information stored there. We cannot store all the information. We store little bits, and on the basis of those little bits, like a detective on the basis of clues, we try and imagine what might have happened. So now psychologists draw memory very close to imagination. They use the same kind of mechanisms. Just imagination seems to be about the future and memory seems to be about the past, but it's roughly the same type of thing that we're doing. So in this kind of context, yes, memories can be inaccurate. And when they are very inaccurate and when they are not uh, amenable to counter-evidence, we can call them Uh, delusional. And there are cases of delusional memories that people have studied. Another thought about this is bizarreness. I think you're saying it probably is a a factor. So, you know, let's take a false memory. If it was a false memory that, I don't know, you boiled two eggs rather than one egg or something uh, last year, uh, you know, some totally boring fact, would that really not qualify as a delusion where if you thought you boiled, I don't know, an elephant, that, that, that that is delusional? Is bizarreness a factor? I think bizarreness is certainly a factor in determining how likely we are to call a belief delusional, although I think it shouldn't be, because if you're thinking about the classic delusions from schizophrenia, they actually, you know, we have been talking about cottage, the belief that one is that, but the most common and frequent delusions are persecution and jealousy. Now, there is nothing more mundane than the idea that Everybody is against you, and if you don't achieve something, it's not your fault. Is that other people are trying to harm you, or the idea that your loved one is uh, not being faithful to you? So, if you think about it, actually, the most common delusions are very mundane themes. They're not bizarre at all, and you know, if they were supported by evidence, they wouldn't be irrational even. Um, it's just that I think you know the, the most bizarre delusions, like the delusion that I'm dead, attract more attention and, and they, they capture our imagination so much more because, you know, they, we immediately think, how could you possibly believe that? Um, and, and, you know, they require a stretch of our imagination to be able to imagine being in a situation where we would believe the same. But, uh, you know, there are delusions that are very disruptive from a clinical perspective, which are completely non-bizarre. Well, this is a very interesting uh, field of research you're doing. Can I ask you how you got interested in it? 
Um, so I've always been interested in rationality. So when I was a graduate student, I was interested in the rationality of scientific change, for instance. You know, when, when a new theory um, replaces an old theory, how do we tell that the new theory is more rational, uh, closer to the truth than the previous theory? And from that, I got to think about the rationality of everyday beliefs. And initially, it was just one chapter in my dissertation, thinking about delusion as one case of irrational belief. And then it became the thing that fascinated me the most. I was very lucky to have a supervisor who was working with psychologists and psychiatrists on this topic. So it was a very interdisciplinary and exciting area of research. Very new for philosophers. Not many people were interested in this area. And, um, and yeah, the rest is uh, history. Yeah, I was just like completely captured by this. Well, as you say, it's very interdisciplinary. I mean, it's, it must be wonderful for you because you, you, you must, you know, as a, go and see medics, but also people in all spheres of life. I mean, lawyers, and you can imagine all sorts of people being relevant to your research. Absolutely. So I, I, I'm very blessed. In the last few projects that I've been running, I was working with clinical psychologists, uh, with, with psychiatrists who were both academic psychiatrists and practicing psychiatrists, so seeing patients. Social scientists are really interested in irrational belief and in the kind of behavior that we tend to reserve to people who we consider irrational as well. Um, and it's, it's, it's just really a question of feeding information from different sources and information that you get from different methods in order to understand something that is really complex. I don't think that by doing philosophy alone, you'd be able to get close to the, a better understanding of the phenomenon of delusions because it involves so much. So before you were asking about the causes of delusions, that's also extremely interesting scientific question that there are a lot of kind of doubts about. People haven't actually formulated the ultimate theory about how delusions emerge at the kind of level of um, mechanisms. And so... I think it's it, it's it's a particular field where there are a lot of question marks still open and people are more willing to work together to try and get answers. And that makes it very stimulating. Now, this series is called The Future Of, and I'd like to ask you about that because it seems particularly uh, in your field that the future is uncertain and things are changing because we've got this post-truth world that people talk about. We've had, you know, the Trump presidency where false statements are put out and people believe them. You know, are you seeing a growth in delusions? Is it becoming more common or are they so mainstream they're, they're not really delusions? How, how do you see the future of this? I think I agree with you that the future of this research is going to be moving away from the most clinical cases to consider more mundane cases of irrational belief that whether we want to call it delusional or not, certainly have very serious uh, implications, very serious consequences for individuals and for groups and for society at large, as you were mentioning in the case of fake news and misinformation. So I think it's going to become uh, interesting to think about, to think more about what distinguishes the delusion that we consider as a sign of mental illness from the irrational beliefs that share so many features with delusions, but we do not consider a sign of mental illness. And, you know, ultimately what we want to know is how to stop 
the spreading of misinformation and fake news. So if there is a form of irrationality that is not personal, but is collective, how do we tackle it? Do we go um, at it by thinking about educational reforms that will take a long time, maybe a long-term solution? Do we learn a new way of talking to people rather than throwing data at them, maybe engage their emotions and trying to think about their point of view? Um, I think that's where the future is, thinking about how to tackle collective forms of irrationality. I, I, think, I think one of the uh, fixes in actually the George W. Bush administration talked dismissively of the truth-based community. So <laughs> if you think of the truth-based community, they would want you as a philosopher to stick to your guns on saying irrationality is delusional and to dismiss uh, you know, the anti-vaxxers or the people who are saying the election was fixed or all these people as delusional. I mean, do you feel comfortable saying that? No, they would have to find another philosopher to help them. <laughs> um, you know, I mentioned earlier that some conspiracy theories and anti-vax movements have been described as examples of delusions. I think sometimes that kind of move is a political move because you are saying, if it is a sign of mental illness, stop engaging rationally with them, just exclude them from the public debate. I think that would be a terrible mistake. Uh, first of all, because not everybody who expresses or shares a view that we might consider as irrational is absolutely confident that that's the truth. So a lot of people are hesitant. They don't know very much about these issues and they can be persuaded some way or another. So to just exclude them from the debate would be, um, would be a mistake, I think. It would be taking away some valuable perspectives on reality from our general discourse. And the other thing that worries me is that although you know, we find a lot of faults with people who do not seek evidence that is respectable and credible for their beliefs, we sometimes forget that they haven't had access to trustworthy and reliable resources. There are some communities that have been marginalized and have learned to mistrust the authorities with good reason, because their interests have never been defended or taken into account. And in those cases, I think we better start changing our institutions first, rather than blaming individuals. Now, you say we should not ignore people who distrust information in this post-truth world, which sounds quite pragmatic. I mean, you know, you may want to treat anti-vaxxers seriously, to take them seriously, but can't you still say they are deluded? Yeah, that's an interesting question. What kind of attitude we should have? Um, and I think probably my intuition is that what kind of attitude is the most ethical uh, and appropriate way to behave towards them? And what kind of attitude is going to get us the best results may not always coincide, right? Um, so I don't think it is appropriate to stigmatize anybody who has delusions, whether the delusion is a clinical delusion that indicates the presence of a mental disorder or whether the delusion is one of these more mundane, common type of delusional beliefs um, that we have described in terms of conspiracy theories or other types of misinformation. What I mean by that is that refusing to engage on a kind of rational level 
refusing to uh, take into consideration someone else's point of view is always, I think, a bad move, both in the case of clinical delusions and in the case of other types of delusion. So I know that it is kind of a common political move to say, oh, this type of belief is a delusion or is like a delusion, thus we don't need to take it seriously. Um, But I think this kind of exclusion from participation in a debate is not uh, the way that we should go. We should always attempt a dialogue, although I think we have to be very realistic and recognize that dialogue with people who have different assumptions and different values will be very difficult. And so maybe we should really start from the basic points that we can all share. For instance, we all have an interest in surviving. We all have an interest in doing well. We all have an interest in protecting the people that we care about. We just disagree on what is the best way to do that, right? Um, So for some people, the best way to protect oneself and others is to, for instance, get a vaccination. Um, For other people, the best way to protect oneself and others is avoid vaccination, right? So there is clearly a disagreement about the facts, whether vaccination is safe and effective, but there is no disagreement about what we should aspire to do. What is our aim? Our aim is to be healthy and to keep being healthy and to protect the people around us. So what I'm thinking is that there are ways to... um, start a debate even with people who end up disagreeing about the facts once we manage to find a common background um, uh, where at least what we want to achieve is quite similar. Yeah, but I'm wondering if that's really satisfactory because, I mean, that almost leads you to a position where you're saying, you know, that the anti-vaxxers and the pro-vaxxers have, that their, their ideas have similar validity, which they, which they don't. No, okay, good. So I'm not saying that they are equally uh, valid. What I'm saying is that the values uh, ultimately uh, may not be so different. Um, What seems to be different is the type of sources that people rely on. So in the case of the people who believe in vaccination, um, they rely on certain institutions. They rely on uh, scientific expertise. And they think that provides the kind of um, authority that they need in order to base their arguments on that particular type of evidence. In the case of the anti-vaxxers, what they refuse is the idea that scientific expertise has this authority, right? They challenge, uh, they mistrust uh, scientists and their opinions. So the positions are not equally valid because I think we have good reasons to give credibility and authority to scientific knowledge and scientific expertise. So in some ways, the pro-vaccination camp is on a more uh, steady ground. At the same time, I think we should try and find a little bit of common ground to get the debate started, because otherwise there cannot be any dialogue and the polarization is only going to get worse. So people are going, as you were saying initially, to insult each other by saying you're out of your mind instead of trying to understand the other person's position and trying to find some uh, common uh, ground. Yeah, it's almost as if you're saying anti-vaxxers may be deluded, but it's not very helpful to say so. And it, it also the, the equality of the word deluded that has an insult in it is, is unhelpful. 
Yes, definitely I'm saying that the insulting bit of it uh, should go. We shouldn't stigmatize people for what they believe. I'm also going to say something a little bit more radical. We are all deluded in some ways. So we all have beliefs, whether we are anti-vaxxers or we are pro-vaccination, we all have beliefs that do not uh, have any support from the evidence that is available to us. Psychology has shown us very clearly. So there are some areas where we all um, exhibit some irrationality. That doesn't mean that we are not worthy of debate, that we cannot have opinions or we cannot be convinced that things are otherwise. It just means that in those areas where we have irrational beliefs, we will be more stubborn and so it will be more difficult uh, to overcome those particular beliefs. That's absolutely fascinating. Can you just give me very quickly one example of, you know, if you imagine the most rational person on earth, someone who really prided themselves on being super, super rational, uh, what sort of thing might they be deluded about? Uh, I have a really good one. So most of us um, have an inflated conception of ourselves. So if we are asked to rate our skills and abilities, could be, you know, whether we are a good driver or whether we are a generous person or whether we are attractive, we tend to vastly overestimate uh, how attractive and generous and good at driving we are. And this applies to uh, most of the population. The only people who do not seem to have this bias, kind of optimism bias, are the people who have depressive symptoms like low mood and do not really believe in themselves, don't think they are better than average. But most of us think that we are better than average. Actually, this is called the better than average effect. And we also believe that our romantic partners are better than average and our children are better than average. And clearly that cannot be true, right? Most people cannot be better than average. So I think, you know, that is a really good example of a belief that is not supported by evidence. It's very resistant to counter evidence and drives our actions. And just finally, then, let me ask you to summarize your thinking on all this. We are, you know, you are studying a subject that has become, I guess, more and more important as this post-truth world uh, becomes more of a, a thing to worry about. So when you look to the future of delusions, the future of rationality, of irrationality, what do you see? I think you are absolutely right in your diagnosis that problems of rationality and irrationality are becoming more and more central. Um, I think what I would like to see in, in the future, uh, both in what people study, people like me who are interested in this uh, from the point of view of science or philosophy, but also the people who engage in, in political debate and try to get things changed, is to recognize that you know, some irrationality is part of who we are, is part of who we are as human beings, as human agents. We have limitations. We cannot remember everything. We cannot always be fair-minded and so on. But the important thing is to be open to the idea that we may be wrong. I think what is really emerging here is that almost this virtue, this intellectual virtue of epistemic humility is what we need. The idea that we may always be in a position to learn from someone else. And combined with the idea that sometimes we have to recognize that we don't have all the expertise that we need to make uh, good decisions in our life. So when it comes, for instance, to health, I want to be able to rely to medical experts because I lack 
medical expertise, they would allow me to autonomously make decisions about myself without relying on anybody else. So this idea that knowledge is limited, but at the same time, knowledge is an act of collaboration. And we need a division of labor in society where I'm not able to be the expert in absolutely everything and I need to trust someone else. So I think these are really, I think, the key issues that we need to focus on. The future depends on humility. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. Professor, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me here.